Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux and the host of this show, Last Week in the Church. Now, if you watch this show on a regular basis, you know, two or three of you that actually do that, you know what the deal here is. Normally, we raid the fridge, right? We take out stories that are about a week old and we try to heat them up. But not this week, because this week, the platters that matter, journalistically speaking, are being served up in real time. Consider what we've seen over just the last 96 hours. So on Saturday, Pope Francis presided over a consistory in which he created 20 new cardinals, including 16 under the age of 80 and therefore eligible to vote for his successor whenever a conclave might happen. Inevitably, such an act shapes the Catholic Church for at least a generation, so it's important in and of itself. The next day, on Sunday, the Pope took a brief but meaningful trip to a town in central Italy, which, among other things, is the final resting place of the last Pope to voluntarily resign the papacy before Benedict XVI. That act has fueled speculation about Francis's own future. And now, even as we speak, Pope Francis is wrapping up two days of meetings with all the cardinals of the world, ostensibly to talk about Vatican reform, but amid persistent rumors that the Pope may have an August surprise up his sleeve. Now, just so you know, we film this show on Monday, but you watch it on Tuesday, so for all I know, this surprise may already have happened by the time you see this. If so, do remember you heard it here first. If nothing happens, try to forget I ever said anything. All that and more is waiting for you after the break. We're going to unpack what this all means, so please stick around. All right, well, listen, first of all, happy Tuesday to you. Happy Pent-Ultimate Day in August in 2022. You know, normally, late August in Rome is like a scene out of The Walking Dead. Like, you know, everything is closed up and shuttered. The only people staggering around the streets are these zombie-like tourists who are on the verge of heat stroke, totally confused, having a miserable time, generally, raising the question of why do they spend, you know, bucket loads of money to orchestrate these, you know, forced marches that are like a scene out of the Second World War. The old saying in Rome is that in August, the only thing moving are cani e americani, dogs and Americans. It's the final days of the traditional August vacation where every self-respecting Italian is either in the mountains or at the beach. But not this year, because Pope Francis, legendarily the Pope of the staycation, doesn't go anywhere, decided to use late August to essentially stage World Series Week in the Vatican. Now, I've been calling it that because this is like the next rung down from the Super Bowl, all right? If we accept that the Super Bowl is like the biggest moment of pop culture significance in the United States every year, like the World Series would be like the next thing, right? Not quite as big, but still really, really important, and lots of people are paying attention. So here's what we've seen this week. Let's begin with Saturday. So on Saturday, Pope Francis held his eighth consistory. Now, a consistory basically just means a gathering of cardinals. And it's not always, by the way, to induct new members into the church's most exclusive club. 
like many of the Vatican dicasteries hold consistories where they just get together cardinals who are members of that dicastery to conduct some bit of business. Like the Congregation for the Causes of Saints will hold consistories where they're deciding on new saints to recommend to the Pope and so on. However, really special consistories are the ones in which the Pope creates new cardinals. By the way, that is the appropriate ecclesiastical verb. A Pope creates cardinals which leads to the old cynical Roman joke that only God and the Pope can create something out of nothing. Anyway, so on Saturday, Pope Francis held one of these big-time consistories where he created 20 new cardinals. It was originally supposed to be 21, but one of the so-called honorary cardinals that is already over the age of 80, Lucas Van Louis of Belgium, declined the honor because he's been accused of mishandling clerical sex abuse cases in Belgium, and he didn't want to cause heartburn for the church there, so he decided to sit it out. So the final number was 20, of whom 16 are under 80, and that makes them what we call cardinal electors, meaning they are eligible to take part in a conclave in which the next pope will be elected whenever that might happen. Now, regardless of the selection of the next pope, creating somebody a cardinal inevitably sets them up as a major player in the Catholic Church for the rest of their career. This is somebody who can open doors and who can close them, who can create opportunities for people and who can shut them down. And so therefore, you know, the choice of who's going to become a cardinal has a lot to do with the direction that the Catholic Church around the world is going to take for as long as these cardinals are around. Now, look, you know, in terms of who these cardinals are, you don't need me to tell you that. Their names are readily available. And let's face it, if you're the kind of person who watches this show, you've probably already Googled it, you know, full well who these guys are. What I'd like to do is take this opportunity briefly to try to debunk three pieces of mythology about cardinals. Now that we have new ones, right, and the tank is kind of full in the College of Cardinals, I'd like to tackle three misconceptions that I run into all the time about cardinals. And listen, I'm under no illusion that just because I'm about to say all this means these myths are going to go away. But nevertheless, you know, maybe they'll be helpful as you try to think about these guys. Let's start with this. The idea that you can divide all the cardinals up into left or right, that is, whether they're liberals or conservatives. Now, I did a fair bit of media over these last few days. Everybody who covers the Vatican has. And one persistent question I get from our colleagues who don't cover this stuff all the time is, do these picks make the College of Cardinals more liberal and therefore more likely to elect somebody like Francis? Well, here's the answer. Let's try to remember that this whole taxonomy of left v. right is an artifact of Western culture. It comes from the French Revolution, right? In the Estates General after the Revolution, the revolutionaries would sit on the left and the supporters of the Anshan regime, the Restorationists, would sit on the right. And from there, we get the idea that liberals are left, conservatives are right. The rest of the world doesn't necessarily think in these terms. So if we analyze this crop of new cardinals, okay, 
You could probably say that the new cardinal from the United States, Robert McElroy of San Diego, sure, he's probably a little bit more to the left than either of the other prelates from California, at least, Francis might have chosen. Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of San Francisco, who recently barred Nancy Pelosi from the Eucharist, or Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles, a member of Opus Dei, who has led the U.S. bishops in a broadly kind of center-right direction for the last three years. And, you know, here in the Vatican, you could say that new Cardinal Arthur Roche, a Brit, is probably a fair bit more liberal than the guy who preceded him, Cardinal Robert Sara, at the Vatican's top office for liturgy. Okay. But here's the dominant thing about this consistory. Most of them don't come from the West. We've got new cardinals from, I mean, think about it. East Timor, Mongolia, right? The Amazon, like all over the map, right? Nigeria. In, in those places, these left-right distinctions just don't mean anything. In fact, Catholic prelates from the developing world, by Western standards, tend to be deeply counterintuitive. Many of them tend to be what we would consider really conservative on matters of sexual morality. So issues such as abortion, birth control, gay marriage, stuff like that. But on matters of social justice, so the death penalty, capitalism, arms control, things like that, immigration, they tend to be remarkably liberal. But more to the point, those just aren't the issues they think about. Okay, take the new cardinal from Nigeria. I guarantee you that the issue that's topmost in his brain right now is the problem of sectarian violence in Nigeria. That is, violence among the various ethnic groups that make up the patchwork of Africa's most populous nation. There is a chronic, worsening problem of security there. There are lingering suspicions that the current government under President Mohamedou Bahari is not really interested in solving that problem because his electoral base is with some of these ethnic groups against others. And when they have national elections next year, 2023, I guarantee you they are not going to be talking about Roe v. Wade. And they're not going to be talking about whether Biden is good or bad or the other things that Americans get worked up over. They're going to be talking about issues that do not break down neatly along left v. right lines. All right. So that's point number one. Look, Westerners, two-thirds of the Catholic population today, almost, is from outside the West. By the middle of this century, it'll be three-quarters. We've got to get over the idea that our categories dominate the Catholic conversation. They don't. So let's just get over that and start coming up with taxonomies that actually reflect the reality of the Catholic Church today. All right, that's point one. Point two. We've got to get over the idea that every cardinal, just by virtue of being a cardinal, is an expert on the Vatican. Like, I see this all the time, right? Like, a guy has a red hat. So, you know, we want to ask him, all right, you know, what's going on with this trial in the Vatican? And why is Pope Francis suppressing the Latin Mass? And, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the raw reality. Unless a cardinal actually works in the Vatican, his thought world is 90% about his local circumstances. And if he's got like, and 5% about his personal situation, and if he's got like 3 or 4% of his brain left over, maybe he'll devote that to the Vatican, maybe not. Here is my personal experience. I interview cardinals all of the time. Everybody on this beat does. It's kind of our job. 
okay? My experience is that I will spend 20 minutes asking a cardinal questions on the record, and then I'll turn off the tape recorder. And yeah, I'm old enough that I still kind of use a tape recorder. I know virtually nobody does this anymore. But, but anyway, point is, I'll turn off the recording device. And then, you know, for the next five or 10 minutes, they're going to be asking me off the record questions about what the hell is going on in the Vatican because they don't know. Frankly, I'm going to make this bet to you. And if you can approach one of these new cardinals and try it, and if you can prove me wrong, like if you can tape it and prove me wrong, I will send you $5 American. And here's my bet, okay? Aside from the two guys who work in the Vatican, that's Cardinals Roche and Cardinal Verges, who runs the government of the Vatican city-state, I would bet you $5 American that unless you give them access to Google, none of the other 16 cardinal electors could actually name more than three defendants of the 10 who are currently facing trial in the Vatican for financial crime. I bet they could all name Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu because they've seen his name in the news. And anyway, the Pope invited him to the party this weekend. Beyond that, I bet none of them know. Prove me wrong. All right. And the third myth about the Cardinals I'd like to debunk is that they're all BFFs. I mean, there's this tendency to think that because the College of Cardinals is a small club, right? If you add up the electors and non-electors, it's just a few more than 200, right? You think that they all must know each other really well. In reality, nothing could be further from the truth. My wife, Elise, who is actually taping this show, Elise has been spending much of the last week running hither and yon, interviewing every red hat that moves, okay? And this is one of the standard questions she's been asking them. How many of the other cardinals do you know? Here's a typical answer. One guy who got his red hat this week said, I know about seven. Seven, okay? out of a hunt, whatever it is now, 132 cardinal electors and 200 plus cardinals total. The point is, if you're the new cardinal from Singapore or Mongolia or East Timor, how in the world are you going to know the guy from Hyderabad in India, or for that matter, the new cardinal of Como in Italy, right? These cardinals are largely strangers to one another. Now that makes these two days that are going on right now really important because it's a chance to at least meet each other. But it's also an important lesson for the next conclave. Don't assume that every cardinal who shows up in Rome to elect the next pope is going to have strong views about who it ought to be, because the truth of it is, many of them just don't know. Just don't know, and that's the truth. All right, shifting gears. After the consistory, Pope Francis traveled to L'Aquila in central Italy. Now, for most Italians, L'Aquila is most famous for the fact that it was struck by a devastating earthquake in 2009, if you are counting. <laughs> if you're counting, that was 12 years ago. The Italian government at the time announced an ambitious reconstruction program. No surprise, the Italian government has, to a great extent, failed to deliver on those promises. The town, some people are still living in makeshift housing. Many businesses still haven't reopened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was great frustration. Pope Francis went in part to deliver a message of mercy, consolation, and hope to these people who are still living amid tremendous suffering. But the other thing that Lockwell is famous for is that its basilica, the Basilica of Colomaggio, contains the remains of Pope Celestine V. Now, Pope Celestine V, 
he was a hermit before his election in 1294. He reigned for only five months and then promptly quit. He was the last pope to step down voluntarily. A couple of other popes have resigned in the centuries since, but that was because the church was in schism and it was sort of down the barrel of a gun. He was the last one to do it of his own volition before Benedict XVI. Benedict XVI had visited L'Aquila four years before his own resignation. He left behind the pallium, the stole he was given upon his election to the papacy on the tomb of Celestine V. With the benefit of hindsight, a lot of people saw that as foreshadowing his own resignation. So the fact that Francis was going, coupled with the fact that he is now largely confined to a wheelchair or a cane because of persistent problems in his knee, that he's aging, that he's had to cancel some trips and other public engagements, all that has fueled speculation that the Pope might resign. Now, in several recent interviews, he had dismissed all of that, saying that the possibility of resigning right now had never entered his mind. And no big surprise, therefore, he went and returned from L'Aquila on Sunday without announcing his resignation. So he remains the Pope and undoubtedly will do so for the foreseeable future. Nevertheless, you know, I think everybody would say we're probably nearer the end of Francis's papacy than the beginning. I don't know too many people who would bet good money that Francis has another decade left to go. And so the L'Aquila trip, nevertheless, is a reminder that we are kind of in that season in the church, that while Francis remains fully in charge and good to go, from what we could see. Nevertheless, we're in that period of time when people are starting to think about what comes next, not in the sense that it's gonna happen tomorrow or the next day, but it will happen eventually, and you kinda gotta think about it. All right, finally, these two days of meetings with all the cardinals of the world. Now, the ostensible reason that Pope Francis gave for asking all the cardinals to come, well, first of all, this has long been the tradition. When there's a consistory to create new cardinals, the tradition always had been that every other cardinal who can tries to make it because you kind of want to welcome new members to the club, right? Like when new senators are sworn in, all the other senators show up. It's just considered a kind of courtesy. Now, all that got interrupted first by the spirit of the Francis papacy, which was sobriety, modesty, so we don't need to spend a lot of money flying everybody over just for ceremonial occasions. And then it really got disrupted by COVID when it was basically physically impossible to get here, even if you'd wanted to. But now that COVID no longer prevents international travel, it was possible for most of the cardinals to show up, and, and many of them wanted to just for the sake of it. But in addition to that, Pope Francis asked them to come because he wanted to have meetings with him yesterday and today to talk about his program of Vatican reform and especially the new apostolic constitution he just issued on the overhaul of the Vatican. So that has dominated the official agenda for the meeting. As I say, a related purpose of this get together was simply to allow the cardinals to hobnob a little bit to meet one another because so many of them don't actually know each other. And I guarantee you this, that if you were to ask any of these cardinals after the fact what part of the program they found the most useful, 
I would guess no more than 5% would say that anything that happened while the meeting was officially underway. I bet most of them would say it was the coffee breaks, it was the lunches, it was the dinners. It was the opportunity just to be informally with other cardinals they'd never met before and get to know them a little bit, find out what their priorities are, what they think about the state of the church, what they think about where things need to go. Because honestly, those are not conversations cardinals get to have with one another very often. Like even when you're in the same country, right? I mean, the cardinal, well now the cardinal of San Diego might call, say, the cardinal of New York once in a while on some bit of business, but it's not like they're running into each other all of the time. But Magari, as the Italians would say, like if you were the Cardinal of San Diego, how often do you run in to the Cardinal of, say, Manaus in Brazil? Or the Cardinal of Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia, right? It just, it doesn't happen. And so these two days are very valuable. But in addition to all of that, there has also been a lot of speculation, especially in the Italian media where speculation is like their metier, their stock in trade, there's been a lot of speculation that the Pope may also use these meetings to spring what's being called an August surprise. Now, what does that mean? Well, people have different versions of it, but the most common version of the rumor is this, that the Pope may be getting ready to issue a change to church law about the office of the Pope Emeritus. That, of course, is the singular office in the church currently occupied by Benedict XVI. In other words, he may be getting ready to change the standing of a retired pope. There has been persistent speculation that Pope Francis has been a little uncomfortable with some of the trappings of the office that Benedict continues to enjoy, the fact he continues to wear the white papal cassock, that he continues to be called Pope, that he, you know, he lives in the Vatican, and on and on. And there is some... Now, this is not to say that Pope Francis doesn't have great personal respect for Benedict XVI. Of course, all the new cardinals, after they were named, went over to greet Benedict XVI, so there's no question of this being some kind of personal this. But there is some sense that Francis just doesn't like the institution, and may be getting ready to either revise it or just abolish it. It with some kind of new legal document. We will see whether that happens. Personally, to be honest with you, I'm a little skeptical. I mean, so suppose Pope Francis were to say, from now on, a retired pope is just going to go back to being a cardinal. He will be known as Cardinal so-and-so, and he has to go back to his home country. Well, okay, but do you think anybody would forget he had once been the pope? And would that stop some people in the church from continuing to point to that guy as the one they really like, as opposed to the current guy? I mean, I, I, I don't know materially what it would affect, but in any event, there's speculation it might happen, so stay tuned. If it does happen, we will have full coverage, of course, on the Crux site. All right, uh, that is our show for this week. Again, you can find our breakdown of all of these stories and much, much more on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. CruxNow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. Thanks for being with us. We will be here next Monday, or next Tuesday, rather. Same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week. And please, for the love of God, keep reading Crux.